0: You're listening to Podfabla Productions, a mashup of fiction, nonfiction, ideas, and commentary, created and narrated by your author host, Victor Aquista. Hey everyone, thanks for spending some story time together with me. Today I want you listeners to get a sample of crime fiction. You know, detectives, private eyes, mystery, murder, that sort of thing. Specifically, I want to introduce you to Ray Flint, a very talented author that I met at my first meeting for the Mystery Writers of America Florida chapter where we are both members. The organization is full of wonderful author colleagues and I treasure being a member. I'm honored to offer you a narrated sample of his fine work. I'll read the opening chapter, but first I want to tell you a little bit about the main character, Brad Frame, the private investigator whose sleuthing adventures and misadventures are at the heart of this collection. If you like having a character that you can join on a series of mysteries where you can put your crime-solving hat on together, this is just the sort of series for you. I'll be reading from number 10 in this crime mystery collection, scheduled for release later this month. Here's the character's backstory. Brad Frame lived a serene but aimless existence on Philadelphia's main line until his mother and sister were kidnapped and murdered. The tragedy transformed his life, after helping the police catch their killers, and with the aid of his mentor, Philadelphia Detective Nick Argostino, Brad opened his own private detective agency, vowing to help bring justice to others whose lives had been turned upside down. What kind of criminal activity will our hero Brad get wrapped up in this time? I don't want to give away too much, but the plot involves art forgeries. Here's Chapter 1 of Deadly Fake by Ray Flint. Brad Frame sat outside courtroom F, preparing to testify for the state in the fraud case against Jeffrey Devlin. The private detective had been waiting since 10 a.m., since he no longer wore a watch, and thanks to the instruction not to bring his cell phone, Brad didn't know the precise time. At least an hour had elapsed since the court's lunch break, which would make it mid-afternoon. He also couldn't text Beth that he'd be running late for their planned trip to Harrisburg. He sighed and stared out the second-floor window of the Montgomery County Courthouse, marveling at a few dried leaves that insisted on clinging to barren treetops in early December. A few years earlier, Brad had spent two weeks in Norristown, serving on a jury in a gruesome murder case of a man accused of killing his wife and depositing her body in a freezer, to disguise the time of her death and give himself an alibi. Since then, two prominent trials had brought media focus to the same courthouse. One involved the perjury and obstruction of justice conviction of the state's attorney general leading to her resignation. The other was Bill Cosby's three-week trial and guilty verdict on three counts of aggravated indecent assault. Devlin's case resonated with Brad since the young man's fraud had been directed towards an octogenarian in the early stages of dementia. Brad had watched the mental vitality drain from his own father in the years before his death. No one should be taken advantage of in those circumstances. Brad stood and paced the hallway. The DA's office had promised he'd be done within an hour. No explanation was offered for the delay. If he didn't begin his testimony soon, he'd be late for a holiday dinner with Beth's uncle and aunt. A side door to the courtroom opened, and a bailiff beckoned Brad inside. All eyes were on him as he approached the witness stand. The room was much smaller than the cavernous ceremonial courtroom A where David Nesbitt had stood trial for murder, but no less impressive with its wood-paneled bench and wainscoting. Brad recognized Jeff Devlin, sitting at the defense table next to his attorney, most likely a public defender. A high school dropout, the defendant had turned 20 recently. His lawyer wore a suit, although he didn't look much older than his client. Across the aisle from them, Assistant District Attorney Cynthia Prescott sat at a table closer to the witness stand. Brad had spoken to her by phone regarding his testimony. Only two spectators, a middle-aged couple, occupied the gallery. Based on their location, directly behind the defense table, Brad guessed they were Jeff's parents. A clerk asked Brad to raise his right hand and swear to tell the truth. After doing so, Brad took his seat. The clock above the door at the rear of the room revealed it was 2.49 p.m. If he got out of there by 4, he might not disappoint Beth. Brad pivoted in his chair and smiled at the jury. They were the ones who mattered. Judge Kent Alberty, one of the newest Court of Common Pleas judges, gestured towards the prosecutor. You may question the witness. Prescott stood at her table, a yellow legal pad in front of her, and guided Brad through a series of questions, "'establishing his credentials as a private investigator. "'This included his education, training, "'and how long he'd been engaged in that line of work "'before she finally arrived at the crux of his reason for testifying. "'Mr. Frame, do you know Alma Wright Hutchinson?' "'I do.' "'How did you come to meet her?' "'Alma's daughter, Christine Stone, is my next-door neighbor. "'In July of this year, Christine, Ms. Stone, "'contacted me, upset about her mother.' what exactly were her concerns? She worried that her mother was being scammed by a young man who mowed her lawn and did other odd jobs around her home. Did she elaborate as to what prompted her suspicions? Miss Stone told me that within the previous year her mother had exhibited symptoms of memory loss. As a result, she had papers drawn up to serve as her mother's power of attorney. In addition, Miss Stone's name was added to her mother's checking account. Earlier this summer, Christine observed unusual cash withdrawals on the bank statements. Had her mother offered an explanation for those withdrawals? The defense attorney leaped to his feet. Objection. Calls for hearsay. Sustained. The prosecutor consulted a pad of notes before moving closer to the witness box. Did Miss Stone say whether she had asked her mother for an explanation of the withdrawals? She did, and I suggested meeting with her mother. Did such a meeting take place, and if so, when? I met with Miss Stone and her mother on august twelfth. Where did you meet? At Alma Wright Hutchinson's home in Haverford. Mr. Frame, during that meeting did you learn the details regarding those withdrawals? Miss Prescott cast a smile toward the defense attorney as if to say, No hearsay now. Yes, Alma, Miss Wright Hutchinson, explained that she'd given the money to the young man who mowed her lawn. The prosecutor didn't ask for specific amounts. Brad suspected Christine had testified to those earlier in the day. Did you learn the name of that man? Yes, Jeffrey Devlin. Did Alma tell you her reasons for giving him the money? She said that his grandmother needed help to afford her medication. Brad noticed that the woman seated behind the defendant winced at his answer. Perhaps there was no grandmother. Had the jury observed her reaction, too? How would you assess Ms. Wright Hutchinson's mental state? The defense attorney stood. Objection! Mr. Frame is not qualified to offer a medical opinion. Judge Alberti cast a you-know-better scowl at the prosecutor. Cynthia Prescott clasped her hands together. I withdraw the question, Your Honor. Mr. Frame... How did you find Alma Wright Hutchinson's communications? Brad directed his answer toward the jury. She was lucid, spoke clearly, and occasionally struggled to find the right word. He could have elaborated, but they would soon see for themselves. During your conversation with Alma and her daughter, did you learn of another financial request made by the defendant? Yes. He wanted to sell her a diamond and ruby brooch, that Alma described as a family heirloom. She had already agreed to buy it. Did you offer a suggestion to Alma and her daughter? The prosecutor had skipped over Christine Stone's horrified reaction upon learning of the jewelry purchase request. Perhaps she'd covered it in earlier testimony with Miss Stone. Regardless, they moved toward the primary reason for Brad being there. I recommended setting up video surveillance to capture the sale of the brooch, Did they agree to the idea? Yes. I installed the system in Ms. Wright Hutchinson's home the following day. Your Honor, we would like to show the jury a relevant portion of the video made by that surveillance system. The judge glanced toward the defense table. Without objection, you may proceed. The defense attorney nodded. The jury would not learn of his pretrial motion to suppress this evidence. Cynthia Prescott rolled a cart containing a large flat-screen TV from the side of the courtroom to where it would be visible to the jury and other participants. This appeared to jog jurors awake from a post-lunch letdown as they wriggled forward in their seats, gazing at the screen as the video came to life. Brad had placed the camera on top of kitchen cupboards, tucked amongst artificial ivy leaves. While Ama had been present when those plans were discussed, he purposely installed the device when she was out of the room, she would not then be tempted to glance in its direction, possibly raising Jeff Devlin's suspicions. Brad aimed the lens toward seating at a granite-topped island, where, according to Alma, her meetings with the handyman took place. This also offered a view through a glass door to the backyard, where Jeff Devlin could be seen mowing grass. At the top of the screen, white letters displayed the date and actual time when the video was recorded, thus documenting continuous action without any breaks or edits. Brad had monitored the filming from his office and, via remote signal, could adjust the direction of the camera by as much as 30 degrees to the left or right. Alma appeared in the foreground, with her silver hair immaculately coiffed, and wearing a casual house dress. She walked toward the door, slid it open to expose the roar of the power mower and waved at Jeff. He seemed absorbed in his work and took a bit before he dislodged his earbuds and waved back. Alma shouted, "'Come and have lemonade!' This had been a part of their ritual during each of his prior visits. Her kindness only made her a more tempting target for Jeff's rip-off scheme. Brad glanced at the jury. The video consumed their attention. Jeff arrived in the kitchen, sat next to the island, and gulped his lemonade. Alma sat beside him. He reached into his pocket retrieved a tissue-wrapped item. This is what I told you about. Alma carefully removed the tissue to reveal a ruby and diamond-encrusted brooch in the shape of a butterfly. It sparkled in the light from the recessed halogen kitchen fixtures. My grandfather gave it to my grandmother for their 20th wedding anniversary. It cost 10000 back then. Jeff glanced at Alma to gauge her reaction, adding, Of course, I wouldn't ask you to pay that much, but if I could get seven for it, that would really help Grandma with her medicine. Alma fingered the jewelry, then held it up to her blouse. It looks really nice on you. When Alma didn't react, Jeff reached into his pocket and produced a photograph. From the video, it looked like it might have been clipped from a magazine. Queen Elizabeth wears one just like it. Brad recalled scoffing at that line when he heard it in real time. Jeff's claim underscored the likelihood of the brooch being a knockoff. Alma's face brightened. Despite having heard her daughter's skepticism regarding the payments she'd made to this huckster, Alma was about to be snookered again. May I write you a check? She asked in a soft voice. Of course, Jeff beamed. Alma stood, walked out of the range of the camera, and returned moments later with her checkbook in hand. Joris watched, quite a few of them with open mouths, as Alma wrote out the payment and handed it to Jeff Devlin. When the video ended, Cynthia Prescott returned the television to the side of the courtroom and approached Brad, where he still sat in the witness box. Did you subsequently take that piece of jewelry, the one we saw on the screen, to have it appraised? Yes, I did. Prescott produced a sheet of paper from a file folder. Your Honor, the Commonwealth would like to submit this certificate valuing the ruby and diamond brooch as Exhibit A. Judge Alberti glanced toward the defense table. Without objection, the court will receive it into evidence. Prescott continued. Your Honor, we're prepared to call the appraiser as a witness, but I'd like to ask Mr. Frame a couple of questions regarding this document. The judge nodded. You may proceed. She handed the paper to Brad. "'Was this the independent appraisal you received regarding the brooch "'sold by the defendant to Alma Wright Hutchinson?' "'Yes. "'Please read for the jury the estimated valuation of the butterfly jewelry.'" Brad had forgotten to bring a pair of reading glasses and held the paper at arm's length in order to clearly see the words. "'This brooch is made of base metal, specifically brass, "'which has been silver-plated. "'It features simulated cubic zirconia diamonds,' While the red stones are colored glass, it has a value of 150 to $200. Brad heard gasps from the jury box. Prescott smiled at him. Thank you. No further questions. The defense attorney rose from his seat. Your Honor, I'd like to confer with my client before beginning cross-examination of this witness. Brad stared at the clock, as did the judge. The minute hand had begun its climb toward four o'clock. Beth is going to be pissed. Judge Alberty cleared his throat. Very well. We'll take a ten-minute recess. Everyone stood as the judge left the bench. Brad found a restroom, then paced the hall in front of the open doorway. The only people remaining inside were the couple seated behind the defense table. No clerk, no bailiff, no court reporter. It felt a lot longer than ten minutes, so he ducked into the courtroom to check the clock. Twenty minutes had passed. "'Cynthia Prescott, wearing a broad grin, approached Brad. "'You can go. "'I've just come from a meeting in the judges' chambers. "'The defendant has agreed to plead guilty. "'The Commonwealth is asking for restitution "'along with a minimum sentence of six months. "'That's great news for Alma. "'I'll let her daughter know.' "'Brad walked to the exit. "'Once outside the courthouse, "'he broke into a run heading for the parking garage. "'No time to spare.' That's correct. No time to spare to find out the rest of this crime mystery. Don your detective's hat and pack up some forensic tools and specimen bags. It might be a good idea to take along a sidearm. You never know when that might come in handy. That's a wrap on today's show. Or should I say, court adjourned. I've included links in the show notes for Ray Flint's website and Amazon author page. I hope you enjoyed listening to today's podcast episode. Check out the show notes for information about Podfabla Productions' Facebook page, my author website, and the eight streaming platforms that carry the show. Please subscribe, tell your friends, and keep an eye out for my upcoming suspense novel, Serpent Rising. Until next time...